for part two of the school to prison pipeline. Now I have some questions and commentary from our show guests that will bring episode one into perspective. Um, and I'll start uh, with Dr. Studi. Uh, can you tell us your full name and title? Sure, I'm, and I'm really happy to be here. Uh, I'm Stuti Kokalera, and I'm an assistant professor of criminal justice and criminology at Sam Houston State University. Um, I got my PhD in criminology and justice policy from Northeastern University in Boston last year. Uh, in my previous life, as I like to say, I was an attorney, not for very long. I realized it wasn't necessarily my cup of tea, but I am trained to think like an attorney as well as an academic. Oh, that sounds really good. And that's what I was going to ask you. Um, so why did you choose this field? I don't think I heard you answer that. If you did, um, can you answer that again for me? Oh, sure. Um, I like to describe myself as an accidental juvenile justice scholar. When I decided to go get my PhD, I had all these grand ideas about understanding legal policy. How do we make these legal policies? And specifically for women and also thinking about human rights more generally. Um, and luckily in my first year of the program, I was assigned as a teaching assistant to the former chief justice of the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court. Um, his name is uh, Chief Justice uh, Roderick Ireland. He is a well-known juvenile justice reformer uh, in the state of Massachusetts. Um, and with through his class, I really got interested in thinking about juvenile legal system issues. So that was when I got my feet wet and I thought, huh, this is a really interesting space to think about um, because I think of myself being a teenager and doing stupid things and thinking about how I kind of got away with not getting in as much trouble as some of the other kids do today. Um, and after that, I got to work with my advisor, Simon Singer, who um, had access to parole board hearings. Um, and these were parole board hearings for individuals who were sentenced as juveniles. So they were under the age of 18. And now they were coming up to the parole board in their 30s, in their 40s, and in their 50s. And all I kept hearing them talk about for a bulk of the hearing is their crime. And to me, that just signaled they have to talk about the worst moment in their life in a public space, um, talk about some of their traumas, and talk about it in an authentic way. And thinking about what is authentic in terms of someone describing uh, their trauma, their traumatic experiences. So that's how I got into this whole space. Um, and to me, both the juvenile court and parole board hearings are an interesting space to think about as an academic, but also think about as um, a scholar, as, a, as an activist, as administrative hearings that really are like criminal trials, where you're put on trial, even though technically you're not in um, criminal court. And so that's where my area of interest is. And I luckily get to teach uh, those topics um, at Sam Houston State. So I teach a course on juvenile delinquency and juvenile justice. Um, this uh, fall, I'm also going to be teaching a course on the fundamentals of criminal law, which I'm really excited about. Um, and then early, I also teach uh, a course on human trafficking, which is another area of interest for me. Um, but most importantly, I think um, having had um, access to parole board hearings and then studying them and also having had access to other juvenile lifers in other states really sparked my interest and this has truly become my life's work um, thinking about how to help folks like you who just 
were in a bad space at a bad time, made a terrible, terrible mistake, um, and one that should be forgivable and one that you should be able to let go and then have a meaningful life uh, beyond prison walls. Thank you. I, and that was one of the reasons why I wanted you to be on the show is because I read an article that you had wrote that was dealing with uh, whether or not juveniles should have access to representation at parole hearings. And so when I was reading your piece, I started thinking, first of all, who is a juvenile? Because that leads me to my next question is that in Maryland, you know, the juvenile age is 17 and under. And so after reading your piece, I was like, anybody who was at a certain age uh, when a crime was committed or when they was convicted of a crime, they should absolutely uh, be represented throughout every aspect of their criminal case and when they go up for parole. So my, my next question has to do with, in your opinion, how do we get the states such as Maryland to change that juvenile age from 17 to 25? Because we're talking about the brain science and the Supreme Court's rulings. But the, it doesn't seem that the states are trying to make any changes. Yeah, that's, that's a great question. And I can talk about this for days. So I'm going to, I'll try and keep it really short. I think another way to phrase that question is how do we get states to buy in to the science about adolescents, about teenagers, right? Um, and with the Supreme Court ruling, I think one of the things that's happened with the conversation from the rulings is this focus on brain science, which is really important. But the other piece of it, which is the social piece of it that you just talked about in the first part of this episode, right? That there are these structures or lack of structures um, that can allow kids to get caught up in the system. And actually in the Supreme Court rulings, there is mention of it. So in the Miller versus Alabama decision, which banned mandatory life without parole for kids who are under the age of 18 when they committed homicide offenses, Justice Kagan actually points out a couple of social factors, like what was the person's role in the crime? What was their family history? Uh, what was their competency like during the hearing? What has been their rehabilitation since then? So I think those pieces do get lost uh, because I, you know, even with legislative activism, sometimes people are not scientists, you know, legislators are not scientists, but I feel like they'd be better able to understand stories like yours. And I think that's where that advocacy piece is really important because the brain science on a, on a conscious level, yes, everyone understands it, but that's just one piece of it. And I really think the social science piece of it, the sociological aspects of it are equally important. And I think that's an important way to get states to buy into it. At this point, the way I see it, a lot of states, including Maryland and a couple of other states are all about compliance. Like what's the minimum compliance that we can do based on the Supreme Court rulings? And very few states I think are trying to push the boundaries beyond that. So to think a little bit more practically for the fiscal conservatives, it's really thinking about we can pull down costs because we're not gonna be incarcerating as many people if we're able to invest in appropriate social services right at the beginning, which is also kind of the basic logic as to why we have a separate juvenile court system. And then of course, on the other end of the spectrum for activists who are really deeply passionate about juvenile justice reform, it's really thinking about, yes, the brain science is extremely important, but it's also thinking about all these social structural pieces uh, that need to be fixed. So I feel like there is a way to come to a compromise between those two to get states to be involved. But I think 
um, it's it's a battle, but I feel like it's a battle that we can win if we're able to position ourselves appropriately as, as juvenile justice advocates. Thank you very much. Um, and that reminded me because me and Merritt were talking about a system where we could connect statewide or across the nation and bring each state together for advocacy work and be able to link everybody in to the same fight, and then we go across the nation one by one, not just talking about this issue, but reentry and so forth and all the other things so that each state can be um, on the same level, so to speak, so that the country and the nation is evolving around the same time. So that's my call of action, and that's some of the work that I'm going to be doing for my uh, platform. Um, thank you. Uh, is there anything else that you would like to add? Uh, no, I mean, I just thank you again for the opportunity to talk about um, talk about these topics with you. I know we talk about it over the phone, but it's really great to be able to talk to other folks here and also listen to uh, your stories. Um, and I'm super pleased that you have my student here because she did a lot of the research on the school to prison pipeline. So I'm really glad that you're able to include Bimanet here today. Absolutely. And that's what I'm doing. I'm leading off and I'm going to Bimanet right now. But before we answer the questions today, I would like to give, for those who don't know, a very brief definition of what the school to prison pipeline is. In the United States, it's the disproportionate tendency of minors and young adults from disadvantaged backgrounds to become incarcerated because of increasingly harsh and municipal policies, as well as because of education inequality in the United States. So now we'll go into our interview with B. Manette. Um, so I would like to ask you, B. Manette, please tell us your full name and what have your study centered on? Okay, so hello, and also thank you for this opportunity as well. I'm very thankful to be able to have this platform as well. Uh, my name, my full name is Bemnet Andabo, and I am a criminal justice major at Sam Houston State University. So majority of my studies focus on the three elements of the justice system being the courts, uh, policing, and the correction system. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, also, what made you want to research court prison pipeline? Yes, so I was a student in um, Dr. K's course of juvenile delinquency and juvenile justice. And as part of an honors contract, we um, typically for most professors, they ask to do like a research paper, like a nine page, 10 page research paper. That's typically how it goes. So that's what I was expecting. But um, Dr. K kind of encouraged uh, me to try and seek a creative outlet. So that's when the idea of a YouTube video came about and starting a YouTube series. And then why I wanted to cover the school to prison pipeline, because it was one of the units that was taught in Dr. K's courses. So I knew that, but I wasn't really familiar with everything that was entailed within the pipeline. I kind of had like a general understanding of, okay, somehow people or our students are going from the classroom to prison, but how does this happen? Where did it start? So I wanted to get more of a, more of an understanding. So that's why I chose this topic. Okay. Um, before I go to the next question, you mentioned your YouTube um, video and I wanted to ask you, cause I want to promote that on Twitter. And I also would like to put it out there where people can go and look at that. Um, for those who may uh, be interested in this topic, um, where would we find that at 
on uh, YouTube. Yeah, so if you go on YouTube and search uh, Naturally B, uh, Naturally and B spelled B-E-E, -E, um, that's, they'll, you'll, you'll easily be able to find those three videos, the three-part series. Okay. All right, so thank you for that. My next question is, can you tell us um, what all you learned throughout your studies um, dealing with this subject? Yes, so whew, I learned a lot um, for, for the most part. It, it was shocking, honestly. It was very shocking because I did not know this all was going on. And I think that a lot of people as well, like we don't understand what's going on in these classrooms that's leading to these things. We see the outcome, but we don't understand how it led to this point. So I learned about the origins of how it began with like the Reagan administration and the zero, and I learned about the policies that are happening, like the zero tolerance policies, the suspension and those effects that it's happening and also who it's happening to. Cause it's not just, um, we have to understand who it's affecting the most because those are the ones that need to be saved the most and those outreaches needed to happen to stop this from happening. And also researching possible solutions, like what can we do? Cause it's once you find find out like what's going on and what's the problem. The next thing is to think of a course of action. Like what can we do or what can I do to help? Even though it's a multifaceted problem, like it's an issue that one person can't solve, but each of us as individuals, we can do our part. And by each of us making a small change, it can lead to maybe systematic change that's needed. That is a great answer. And uh, I was going to tell you, um, I think a lot of prison the school to prison pipeline has to do with policies. Mm -hmm. I think that um, some of this stuff on crime, some of this war on drugs, some of the stuff they started early on, these crime bills, they were piling in a bunch of stuff that would, uh, you know, tip the scales um, towards certain racial ethnic groups and certain um, social economic groups. So I think we have to attack some of that and we got to get some of these um, tough on crime, crime bill policies and stuff. Uh, thrown out and put some new ones in. Mm -hmm. So I do a lot of legislative work, but you hit that on the nose and I appreciate that. How, so the next- We have 60 seconds remaining. Um, I'm gonna ask the question and I'm gonna call back. Um, so how do you think we can combat this systemic failure that destroys so many families? And I'm gonna let you answer that when I return. Hello, everybody. This is Philip Allen Jones, and I'd like to let everybody know how you can reach me or how you can find me. Please go to www.jpay.com slash 881-507 at Washington State if you want to reach me by email. www.grantparoletophilip.com That's my website. Um, for my podcast, you can go to Spotify at the wall behind and beyond and I have a petition on change.org slash in need of a second chance grant parole to Philip Alvin Jones uh, on Facebook just type in Philip Alvin Jones uh, Instagram at Philip underscore Alvin underscore Jones all lowercase and Twitter at Philip A. Jones 71 I look forward to hearing from everyone and please support me and follow me um, as my case uh, depends upon it. Thank you. How do you think that we can combat this systemic failure that destroys so many families?
Yes, Ooh, that is a powerful question. That is a powerful question. Um, I would say that the most, the first thing that we can all do, something that we all can do to play our role and to play our fair share in this battle is to first become educated on what's going on. Uh, knowledge is power. So if at first we can acknowledge and become aware of what's going on, then we can identify the solutions and what we can do. So I think that the first thing we should do is to become educated and share this knowledge with other people because I didn't know. And I'm pretty sure a lot of people also don't know what's going on. So whenever people don't know, they're kind of blind and they don't understand what's going on. So I think that's the first key and also becoming the change that you want to see. For example, um, in my case, I'm currently studying, um, studying for the LSAT as well to become, to go into the field of law as well, to become a defense, criminal defense attorney. So that is my goal. And that's something that I believe that not everyone, of course, has to become an attorney or anything like that. There's different things that we all can do. But the first thing I would say for the most part, definitely that is important is to become aware of what's going on and also um, and also trying to get involved in different organizations. So that way it's not just you, um, us as individuals, we can do something, but together, when we come together to fight these issues, the impact can be greater. So that's what I would say, to get involved and to become more educated is definitely an important, at least tool that we can have to fight. That's, to fight. that's an uh, excellent answer. You said knowledge, awareness, and getting involved. And those yes. are the calls to action. Um, I mean, I've read, I read your piece and it was powerful. Um, it even had a child with my name, Philip. Um, and I'm wondering, you already answered this partially, but have you continued your work? And is there a way that we can also help in this relic of Jim Crow? When I say we, I'm talking about my, uh, myself, my team, and other people that's in this advocacy business who wants to see changes being made. What can we do also to get involved? You said knowledge, awareness, and getting involved. But mm -hmm. is there anything that you can give us in your continued work where we can join up and do other projects or something like that together? Good question. Hmm. Um, I think, ooh, let's see. Um, there's different, I'm still learning myself and trying to see what different avenues and what organizations that I myself can be a part of. So maybe that's something that we all can do as well, like having and researching, researching and researching and reading more and getting more knowledge of what's going on, I think, um, like I said before. So yeah, I think that's the most important thing. And what we all can do, I would say, is to find these organizations and to try, we can start a blog. For example, one thing that I've started um, since then, I've started a podcast as well with one of my roommates who's a, who just graduated from Sam Houston uh, State University as well. And she's a CJ major. So we started a podcast, different topics. We're just trying to get our voice out there. It doesn't matter if only one person listens to it. Oh, well, like at least we could say that we tried. So I think by trying what we can and doing what we're talented at in any if you're an artist you can draw help things that can bring um attention to it you can draw you can write you can make videos like whatever you're best at you can help and showcase to bring and shed light onto this issue thank you very much um i already have contact information for dr stewie um if anyone wants to get a hold of you um, how would they do so? And what would you like to say in your parting words? Yeah, so in my parting words, I'd like to say thank you so much for this opportunity. I would also like to say that I want to get more involved. I would love to, like, if there's any organizations, please let me know more. I do want to learn as much as I can and be involved as I can. So I would love for 
any organizations contact me i'm here to help and i'm willing to learn as well so thank you so much also thank you so much for doing our podcast we look forward to working with both of you on future projects and if you leave your um email address with um miss youngblood um we will get a hold of you because we are an organization and a team that consists of many different organizations and we have so many different things that we're working on and goals to combat some of these issues. That's why we're raising them on this podcast. So I appreciate y'all. This is my third show. Um, stay tuned because we got some more powerful shows coming out. And please um, subscribe and listen. The work is just beginning. Hey, everybody. Um, I just wanted to say, go to my website, Grant Parole to Philip, G-R-A-N-T-P-A-R-O-L-E-T-O-P-H-I-L-L-I-P.com. And scroll down, you'll see a link to donate for my legal fees. As I'm in need of a criminal attorney, um, I also have another link to donate to my GoFundMe for mental health expenses. Thank everybody for your support. And thank everybody for the love they've been showing me. I appreciate it. And um, God willing, you know, it'll make a difference and I'll be home soon.